0: From Treaty 6, 7, and 8 lands, I'm Iman Bukhari.
1: And I'm Irfan Chaudhry, and you're tuning in to the Common Ground Podcast.
0: Canada, the home of multiculturalism in all its glory. The land of acceptance, handsome politicians, Tim Hortons, mooses, bears, and exceptionally kind people who say sorry way too much. But does saying sorry really mean much in these times of increased political, cultural, and social polarization? In recent years, we've seen public acts of hatred globally, nationally, and even locally. The Quebec mosque shooting from 2017 reminded all Canadians of the real impact these polarizing tensions can have in our country. Hate crimes, hate incidents, and hate groups have been increasing across the nation over the past few years. In 2017, police reported 2,073 criminal incidents in Canada that were motivated by hate, an increase of 47%, or 664 more incidents than reported the previous years. The prairies seem to host a lot of these groups. Alberta, in particular, has been somewhat of a hotbed for hate crimes in Canada in the recent years. According to Statistics Canada, the number of police-reported hate crimes in Alberta increased 38% from 139 incidents in 2016 to 192 in 2017. Nationally, right-wing hate groups spiked to as many as 500 members in 2018 and are believed to be a response to a shift in our political landscape. The elections of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and previous Alberta Premier Rachel Notley, combined with the economic downturn in the province, has created an interesting environment for these groups to emerge, something which Canadian and American hate researchers like Barbara Perry, Jack Levin, and Jack McDevitt have been forecasting since the mid-1990s.
1: Being able to track and understand the real prevalence of hate crimes is a difficult task. Hate crimes tend to be underreported, a phenomenon criminologists refer to as the dark figure of crime. The dark figure of crime refers to the actual amount of crime reported to the police versus the actual amount of a certain crime type occurring in any given community. There are many reasons people do not report hate crimes to the police. Most commonly, victims are scared to report to the police for fear of retaliation, or they really don't think the police can or will do anything. This is especially true in our current context, where perceived hate groups seem to freely be able to congregate in public spaces, sharing anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and xenophobic values. In January 2019, for example, the city of Red Deer experienced anti-immigration demonstrations on a weekly basis by the so-called Yellow Vist Canada movement, one block away from Red main welcome center for newcomers. According to a CBC News report on the demonstrations, posters were being circulated at the protests claiming Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's agenda supports terrorism, mass Muslim immigration, and is starting the process of Sharia law. The rally attracted members of the soldiers of Odin, an anti-immigrant and, to be quite clear, anti-Muslim group who often show up when the Yellow Vest organizers host a public demonstration. Here in Edmonton? the Yellow Vest Canada movement has been fairly active, from weekly protests outside former Premier Notley's office in the weeks leading up to our recent provincial election, to public demonstrations in front of Edmonton City Hall, where members of the group got into physical altercations with anti-racism protesters. The group has been very active and very vocal in Edmonton.
2: Canada today. This one here in Edmonton drew some counter protests and it got a little heated. An environmentalist pulled away from this gathering of yellow vests at the Alberta legislature. And at a second protest downtown lots of shoving over differing views. At one point a yellow vest pushing me with my camera as tensions between the two groups flared.
1: Local reporters have been covering this group over the last number of months. One of the main reporters following the story is Omar Mosley of the Star Edmonton. I had a chance to sit down with Omar to talk about his experience with covering the Yellow Vest group. This interview occurred coincidentally one day after the New Zealand mosque shooting.
3: Describe the, the Yellow Vest protesters as fairly homogenous. It's, you know, people you'd see on the street and, and wouldn't catch your attention. So, you know, everyday Albertans, working class people, it uh, should be said for the context of this interview, mostly white. People who were frustrated and, and angry and and wanted answers to their, to their grievances and, you know, some kind of support from the government and just to feel like they were being heard. It was mostly directed to the federal government. You see a lot of uh, vitriol and rhetoric directed towards Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But There's also a lot of people who weren't big fans of Premier Rachel Notley. Either. So the counter-protesters, um, somewhat of a homogenous group as well, uh, definitely younger crowd. Uh, a lot of them were covering their faces, um, often accused of being Antifa or Antifa. And, um, yeah, they, they were generally there to stand against what they saw as racism and hate. That started emerging as the um, anti-illegal immigration piece started becoming more and more prominent. The
1: Yellow Vest movement in Alberta gains momentum by exploiting a sense that the country is changing, and it is working-class Canadians who will be left behind. This seems to be what is fueling Canada's Yellow Vest movement, according to some scholars who have been following the group's activity locally. In Alberta, the movement has gained a lot of traction because of the oil recession, also because of the ongoing pipeline issue and also the provincial carbon tax. But many Albertans who align with the group also feel threatened by the change in demographics in Alberta. They are concerned with non-white immigration changing the face of our country, imposing foreign ideas and values into a Canadian way of life. As Omar noted in some of his observations in covering the group, the movement, intentionally or not, is providing a platform to individuals and groups with an extreme view. The Wolves of Odin, an Edmonton-based splinter group of the Soldiers of Odin, who insist they're only against radical Islam, have attended every yellow vest protest in Edmonton.
3: Formerly Soldiers of Odin, then became Wolves of Odin, and then the Clan and Canadian infidels, the perpetual rebranding. They were at every rally I've ever been to. Uh, strong presence, certainly, um, in in some cases, actually, the organizers of the event, National Citizens Alliance, they're they're they've been quite prominent at these events too. That's Stephen Garvey, and he's he has quite a track record of, of being uh, fairly extreme when it comes to his anti-immigration views or anti-illegal immigration. Uh, but yeah, the they were they certainly weren't being like pushed out, but they are also, they're also not representing the movement they're kind of just there but their their main thing is that you know we're standing together as canadians we're all canadians and they'll always say you know we're not anti-immigration we're anti-illegal immigration we want proper vetting and you know i have friends who are muslim and i you know my friends were colored and i guess it's just a, the the biggest thing i got out of it is these are people who want to feel like they're being heard and and i think that they feel that by standing together they're they're closer to that goal
1: One of the contradicting things about this group is that publicly, they claim to not be racist, not xenophobic, and not anti-immigrant. Their online activity, however, paints a very different picture. In 2016, when the group was gaining traction in Canada, I had a chance to analyze the comments on their public Facebook page in order to test this claim. What I found was surprising. Or maybe not. Between January 14th to September 5th, 2016, there was a lot of activity on the Soldiers of Odin Facebook page, partly due to the increased media attention. There seemed to be a lot of engagement from the users with over 26,000 comments, shares, and likes. Of the online activity observed during this time period, 31% provoked an overtly racist, xenophobic, anti-Muslim or anti-immigrant narrative. What this shows is that users of this Facebook page do hold and express racist, xenophobic, anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant sentiment countering their public claim of not being a hate-fueled group.
3: You certainly hear it and where you really see it is online, uh, the the Islamophobia. It's there, it's a big part of this movement. In terms of how it's actually motivating people, I think like like when I, I remember going to one event and the speaker was talking about how refugees and migrants would bring disease and and security concerns and overload the health and education system and a lot of talk about Sharia law being implemented and and it gets you know I, I sometimes call it the rabbit hole because the deeper you get into it, the more bizarre it gets and you know a lot of concerns about Sharia law and and then um, sort of population control and and there's this idea that. Like, you know, the the prime minister and and sort of world leaders are all part and parcel of this conspiracy to, to replace Western white Canadians and Americans. And like the more you perpetuate these fringe extreme ideas, the more people start to accept it as, oh, yeah, maybe this is a real thing. And, like, you talk to people and, and their concerns about Sharia law being implemented in Canada, like, this is the top-of-mind issue for them. And, and yet you ask them, like, well, what kind of evidence do you have that this is actually happening? And they can't point to anything. But it's clear that, you know, it's kind of like this echo chamber where they hear it online, they see the speakers talking about it at these rallies, they have their own uh, concerns validated by other people they're speaking to. And then all it takes is that one person to really say, this is a thing that I need to do something about. The influence from the online world cannot be ignored.
1: Our lives intersect online in a stream of likes, shares, retweets, and comments. In a digital society, we are exposed to endless threads of information and potential misinformation. We expose ourselves to ideas and perspectives we align with while ignoring points of views we disagree with. While this might not sound like a bad thing, it leads to amplifying our echo chamber of ideas online where we assume everyone thinks like us acts like us and feels like us. In an opinion article I wrote earlier this year for the CBC, I reflected on the impact the online hateful narratives have on our offline world. Far too many recent examples highlight what can happen when ignorance and fear festering online come together offline in a violent and hateful moment. Examples include the 2019 livestream mass murder at New Zealand mosque, The 2018 van attack in Toronto, connected to an involuntary celibate movement, angry at women. The 2017 Quebec City Moss shooting, where the shooter was really upset at Canada's stance on immigration. The Orlando nightclub shooting in Florida in 2016, where a gunman went and opened fire at a gay nightclub. Or the 2015 mass shooting in a South Carolina church, predominantly congregated by black churchgoers. These horrific crimes are tied together by the fact that the individuals responsible espouse hateful sentiment towards certain groups, spewing and festering in their hateful narratives online, until one day they realize saying things online was not enough. While these examples highlight the extreme end of the spectrum in relation to how online hateful rhetoric can lead to offline acts of violence, it's important to remember that other acts of offline action are also fueled by online polarizing narratives. Recent local examples include the Yellow Vest movement having their concerns about the economy quickly catapulted into protests against immigration. Or, similarly, two members of a self-described patriot group visiting a mosque in Edmonton on a Friday before prayer in early 2019 to ask questions. They use social media to spread misinformation and broadcast their interaction on Facebook Live.
2: Security images show two men enter the mosque wearing patches that say kafir, an Arabic word for non-believer, adopted as their group's symbol. They then went outside and live-streamed on Facebook as four of them questioned those going to pray. No way when they streamed um, the video live they were looking for attention and we're not going to give them that. Our priority, our number one priority is the safety of everybody that comes through this mosque. The video was posted by a man who calls himself Ty Hunt, who in recent months has been affiliated with extremist groups like the Wolves or Soldiers of Odin. He now claims to be the leader of the clan. But what the video doesn't show. The man they're questioning here tells us they were asking Islamophobic and offensive questions leading up to this moment.
4: They basically pulled up
3: the phone when they were kind of calmer, right? Um, it just seems like they were uh, trying to be well-behaved in front of the camera at first. First I saw them patrolling White Ave. They were, they were going to some... Uh, some establishments that had put up anti-hate posters, and um, it looked like a, a way of you know basically trying to intimidate them, but they were saying we were just going to look at places. And and that I kind of just ignored. And then I saw that they had gone to the mosque and were outside asking questions, and I think I originally saw it on, on Tyson Hunt's Facebook page where he was live-streaming them sort of debating with these worshippers. And um, that was clearly to me like, there was one picture of him, someone giving a finger or something. It was it was clearly a form of intimidation, but also a statement that, you know, very much an us-versus-them narrative. And that clearly became newsworthy, just the fact that these um, people who have a clear track record of Islamophobic statements, both online and in other spheres, were, were at a mosque. And, you know, I talked to the mosque. They were concerned. Some people online were defending it, like, oh, what's wrong with walking into a mosque and asking questions? But based on historical events, like the mosque shooting in Quebec, you know, you can understand why they were, you know, very alarmed when this happened. And and I think they used the the term, uh, we're surveilling. Like, they said that themselves. So, um, I was actually just at the same mosque, and I was speaking with them about um, the events in New Zealand, and uh, the spokesperson said, you know, when that did happen, these are the kinds of, these are the reasons why we're concerned about these things, because they can escalate, they do inspire people, and then there's some very dangerous things happening under the surface. But I have heard that some people are, I wouldn't use the word praising, but I guess they're kind of saying like, oh, an end justifies a means kind of thing, like you know, this is what happens when uh, you let immigration get out of control or you give too much power to certain groups. And um, I don't think anyone's like cheering it on, I'm sure there's someone out there who is. But um, the general sentiment seems to be like, um, this is based also on a, on a New Zealand senator, who said something along the lines of, um, you know, this is what happens when when, when you let immigration get out of control, or um, would there be the same reaction to a a terrorist attack perpetrated by a Muslim? And um, what the end result of that is, I'm not the person to say, but it's certainly um, quite shocking to see anyone respond with anything other than a clear condemnation of this violence. Immigration. Perhaps one of the most
1: polarizing and controversial topics in this day and age. This idea that immigration is out of control has really mobilized a group of people and influenced the motive in spreading anti-immigration content. In fact, anti-immigration can be viewed as a key grievance many folks on the far right leaning end of the spectrum hold. While there is nothing wrong with holding strong views about immigration and wanting to control the process. How these arguments become weaponized and polarized for ideological gain is what really creates the challenge. Peter Newman, an international expert in understanding violent extremism, put forward a model that helps frame this in a straightforward way. He talks about grievance, ideology, and mobilization being the key ingredients to potential acts of radicalization and violent extremism. When we look at this model and apply it to recent violent examples, it becomes quite clear how common anti-immigrant sentiment has played a role in fueling the grievance of the attacker. The Quebec mosque shooter, for example, reportedly posted many anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim messages in the weeks and months leading up to his attack. The tipping point for him was when the day before the attack, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau posted what the shooter viewed as a pro-immigrant tweet. On January 28, 2017, the Prime Minister tweeted, To those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canadians will welcome you, regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag Welcome to Canada. Almost 24 hours later, on January 29, 2017, Canada would be victim to our most heinous act of homegrown terrorism and violence in recent years, as the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec City was targeted by a killer, fueled by an anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant grievance.
2: Police closed off the area surrounding the Quebec City Islamic Cultural Center as armed officers entered the mosque. It was during evening prayers on Sunday that witnesses say gunmen opened fire on 40 worshippers inside. Ambulances continue to take away the dead and injured.
1: For him, the mosque was an ideal target, since he perceived the Canadians who were practicing their faith inside the house of worship as a symbol of his hatred towards the changing face of Canada. Unfortunately, this would not be the last time a mosque would be targeted by a violent extremist. In 2019, New Zealand would be the site of one of the country's most brutal acts of mass murder and violent extremism. The killer in this case also targeted a mosque, fueled by similar anti-immigrant grievance. The killer in New Zealand often referred to immigrants as invaders, and he would call himself a kebab remover. He also referenced the Quebec mosque shooter, alongside other recent mass murderers on the ammunition clip connected to his gun.
3: Now, every, any given day you go on the Yellow of Facebook groups, you're going to see Islamophobia, you're going to see anti-Semitism, you're going to see stuff about you know, advocating for death for the Prime Minister. And so, you know, I had kind of become desensitized to it and, 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 and sort of dismissive of it, which was when I thought about it more, and it, it really put things into perspective for me.
0: Down in Calgary, there really hasn't been any less white supremacist, anti-immigration, and anti-Muslim activities, including community members reporting suspicious men going inside mosques and gurdwaras surveying people. Not to mention the day after the New Zealand attacks, there was a video posted online to the social media account of the National Citizen Alliance, a minor federal party founded by Stephen Garvey, a well-known anti-immigration and anti-Muslim activist with an unidentified cameraman and narrator making overtly threatening remarks claiming people hanging around at the city's Genesis Centre, a diverse community hub in the Northeast, represent the replacement of traditional Canadians and present an existential crisis and threat to Canada.
4: Traditional Canadian populations are being replaced. That is a fact. Canada is being turned into a UN globalist village. This is the demographic reality of Canada. We all need to own it, to accept it. This is, this is reality.
0: However, there is one man that many folks know who has consistently stood up against various hate groups for over two decades. He was previously part of Calgary Anti-Facist Action and is now part of Calgary's Anti-Racist Action Group. And his name is Jason Devine.
4: So our goal isn't just racism. We're anti-capitalists. We want to draw people's attention to the fact that racism isn't just bad ethics, bad morality, bad ideas, that it's rooted in the structures of our global world. And so... Uh, We try to combine our anti-racist critique with an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist critique.
0: Due to Jason's activism, him and his family have been violently targeted numerous times. In fact, in 2010, Jason battled the Alberta government to get his children returned home just two days after he was beaten.
4: In response to our actions, uh, me and my family have faced numerous uh, forms of violence. Our house has been firebombed, our windows have been smashed, our tires slashed, our house attacked... Uh, culminating in a home invasion murder attempt. Um, but it's, it's it covers myself. This is what I've been doing. This is what I've been dedicated to. It's something I'll continue to the day I die, hopefully.
0: Antifa or anti-fascists have been commonly labeled as an extreme left-wing group. Antifa is a collection of individuals, locally and globally, who often come out to protest in defense of anti-racism, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-sexism, anti-corporation, and other perceived injustices. While the list of policies that Antifa is opposed to is pretty long, their primary focus is really fighting the far-right ideology. Although many members and activists that are part of Antifa might wear bandanas or masks in order to hide their identities from authorities, not everyone will do
4: that. The whole idea of Antifa is just an ethos. It's an idea of being anti-fascist. That's all it means. Not everybody dresses up uh, as my child. We had a, a protest years ago, and some people were completely black blocked up. And my son was like, Dad, why are those people dressed like ninjas? And I'm like, I, well, that's their style. That's <laughs> So some people try to identify like that, but it's really... To get a grasp of it, you have to look at the global history of it, you have to look at the national history of it, and for example, something like Calgary Anti-Racist Action, one would have to attend to its local history to understand its tactics and strategies and stuff like that. So yeah, I think people just say, look at the headlines like, oh Antifa, people at Black Buck up and smash things, and that's, that's not it.
0: Having grown up in Alberta and having a keen interest in social justice, Jason is well aware of the history of hate in this province.
4: Oh Well, it's like living next door to a toxic dump and it's seeping over the borders. (laughs) I can say it that bluntly because, you know, we have one of the largest militia groups in Canada, the 3%ers, that is taken directly, lifted out of right-wing militia conspiratorial thinking in the United States. Like this idea of 3%. That is no Canadian roots at all. These are just... Angry racist aggrieved white people who've lifted up this American politics. That's what it is So that's the best way i would describe it Canada is a uh, capitalism perilous settler colonial society. It's formed off genocide it's, uh, The very structures of society are built in white supremacy. So it's no accident that um, We see these manifestations of white supremacy explicitly um, Here in Alberta and in other provinces, but more specifically, Alberta has tended to have historically Uh, high rates of immigration from the United States of America, specifically white Americans. So there's no accident that there was an overlap, say, in the early 1900s up to the 20s and maybe to some extent the 30s of the Ku Klux Klan organizing here. You know, thousands and thousands of members would overlap with Montana and some of the other lower states. So there's these historical structures that have existed. There's been the organizing that's happened, and it's gone up and down, of course. Like, we could say the radicalization during the 60s and 70s saw a low dip, in that organizing and then up back into the 80s there was a another increase in it right so um anti-racist organizing really grew in the 80s as a response to it kind of middling in the 90s and then you know it's like a cycle it goes up and down up and down and there's been a variety of different groups that i've organized against in my time here
0: in recent years and especially with the election of donald trump as u.s president there have been a reestablished boldness in some of these groups to engage in hateful and polarizing protests under the umbrella of freedom of expression and to broader extent patriotism We've seen way too many examples of this where nationalism and patriotism has been used as a guise for advancing racially charged rhetoric, such as the Great Replacement, a common white supremacist theory that white identity is being replaced due to Western democratic nations focusing too much on diversity, too much on inclusion. This is often fueled by those who are feeling oppressed as a result of the Great Replacement theory to act out in very violent ways. In fact, the manifest left behind by the New Zealand shooter was titled The
4: Great Replacement. People don't want to think about that. (laughs) You don't want to think that there's a frankly terroristic neo-Nazi gang that's stockpiling guns, stockpiling uh, machetes, weapons making bombs, marching through streets, threatening people. That's happened in the city. This is a fact. This is documented. People don't want to think that that's first and foremost, fully understandable. The other issue is this isn't taught in schools. It's not a part of the curriculum. If a teacher doesn't know about it, they're not going to teach it. I know this because I am a teacher, so it's not in any textbooks, not in the curriculum. So if you're lucky to have a teacher who knows about this, you'll hear about it. But if not, so for most people, if you didn't catch it, when it happened in the news, out of sight, out of mind.
0: Jason believes that in the upcoming years, hate groups will keep growing and becoming more active.
4: These people organizing at this time were your classic uh, neo-Nazi boneheads, right? Like white guys working out, stockpiling weapons, shaved heads, swastika, armbands, zig et etc. When people see that, it's easy to say, okay, I'm not that. I am not. I would never do that, you know? But with the growth of the quote-unquote patriot movement, with the growth of Islamophobia, there's a wider range of people. So the racism there doesn't come across as explicit unless you attend to the practices and the discourse that's going on. Like the Yellow Vest Movement, people go out there saying, I want oil. And we have to be critical of the question of the whole oil patch, people's support for it. But when you say that, unless you pay attention to what they're saying, you drive by in your car, you don't know that these people are saying, you know, all muzzies out, which is a slur for Muslims. He
0: also thinks that most of the folks who are part of the hate groups are actually just uneducated and angry.
4: It's, oh, those immigrants are taking our jobs. I know it's a laughable cliche, but for most of these people, that's literally what they think. And with the new form, right, because I'm talking like organized against neo-Nazis, which is explicitly fascist formation to, uh, Islamophobic form rather, those people are proto-fascists. So who knows where they're going? But this is mixed up with critiques of globalization, liberalism and such. So it's a broader thing. And what are they angry at? Well, let's look. The world economy is at its worst in, what, since 2008. People talk about recovery. It hasn't actually. Wages have stagnated. Unemployment is high across globally. Climate change is increasing. The world situation is not great. And so that's for them, the easiest target is what? The people we think are taking our jobs, that are pulling the strings, it slides into conspiratorial theories.
0: And like many others, he believes education is a big part of this problem.
4: People have to educate themselves. They absolutely need to do more study, more research. We're living at a time where it's so easy to just look at a headline and not even click on the article, not even read it. And we need to read these things critically. I tried to explain to my sons the other day and some of my students, you know, if I went around making claims you should be asking me, where's your source for that? Where are you getting that from? You look at almost any, any mainstream news article, where's your sources? Where are you getting this from? Like, the assertions that fly out there, we need more critical thinking, we need more logical thinking.
1: While educating ourselves is one part of the puzzle, understanding the causes and impacts of hateful narratives is another piece that needs to be worked on. Without this understanding, no amount of education can help. By being informed, aware, and educated, we can be in a better position to challenge and counter the narratives of hate when we see them, both online and offline. By doing this, the voice of inclusiveness and common ground will overpower the voice of hate.
0: Next episode, we speak to Indigenous activists about current narratives of hate in Alberta.